A favorite Bible verse of many Christians and many non-Christians alike is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And this is what it says. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Or a non-King James, judge not that you be not judged. Have you ever heard that before? So maybe another Christian has told you that. Hey, judge not lest ye be judged. Or maybe you've used that phrase to somebody as they come to you to maybe talk about sin they see in your life. And you might have said, judge not lest ye be judged. Chances are all of us have used that at one time. So you think about different contexts that we could use this in. Maybe somebody's living in immorality as a Christian. And a brother or sister lovingly confronts you. And you say, judge not lest ye be judged. Or you're living apart from the church family that you've decided to covenant together with and to grow with and be a part of, and a brother or sister comes to you and says, Brother, sister, you are not keeping a step in terms of uh, obeying God's word and, and meeting with our gatherings and serving with the church and involving yourself, and you say, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Or maybe there's an evidence of greed in your life, and you're confronted over that greed or jealousy or whatever it is within your life, you're confronted, and you say, Judge not, lest ye be judged. And on and on that cycle goes. It's almost like judge not, lest ye be judged has become the card by which we escape any kind of questioning or accountability from another Christian. We think that Jesus' point by this little phrase ultimately means mind your own business and leave me alone, don't we? Now that is certainly one of the most taken out of context verses in the entire Bible. And many people, many Christians quote it. And the point of that passage, though, is not that we should never make a a judgment call in regard to one another's lives. The point is that you get the beam out of your own eye before getting the speck out of another person's eyes. I I was feeling this yesterday. We did a little yard work back here, as you can tell. Cut down some trees and there was dust flying everywhere. And I didn't have any glasses on and and a a speck was in my eye the entire day uh, until it apparently came out at night. And so there was a speck in my eye. So this was pretty real to me. So it would be funny if you came up to me and you had this log hanging out of your eye and you said, hey, Brandon, there's a speck in your eye. There's something bigger in your eye, right? And so the point of Jesus within that teaching in Matthew chapter 7 is not that you would never go to somebody and make a judgment biblically about what they're doing wrong. The point is that you would make sure that you're going to them and making sure that that log in your own eye has been dealt with. Because as a church family, we are to properly and biblically judge one another. If you have fallen into sin, it is the job of another brother or sister to come to you and to address that sin in your life. To make a judgment call that you have fallen into sin and to confront you over your error. Matthew chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 display for us very clearly that there are times that even the church as a whole needs to come to a brother or sister and and make a judgment call and to say, brother, sister, you are living out of step with the gospel. You are sinning. And maybe if it goes to the full extent to be removed from the church. Now, we don't like to call it judging, do we? Because, again, within our day and age, to the modern ear, to say that somebody is judging somebody is basically the worst thing that you can possibly do in a lot of cases. But again, within a church that has covenanted with one another to love and to care for one another, we go to a person that has sinned in order to restore them, 
to say, brother or sister, you have sinned. You are out of step with God's word. Come back in step with it. This is a needful and biblical practice. And I think that one of the things that this text helps to illuminate for us and will this morning, I hope, is that there is a massive difference between judging and being judgmental. Huge difference between biblically judging a situation and being critically judgmental of another brother or sister. I like what one author said about judgmentalism. He said, what the scriptures forbid is judgmentalism, a critical and censorious or accusative spirit that judges everyone and everything seeking to run others down. So there is a massive difference between judging the actions of another person and being judgmental of another person. If you are being a faithful Christian and you see another brother or sister in in sin and you go to them with your Bible in hand in love for that person and you address where they have sinned, you have judged properly. But if you're attempting to be a faithful Christian or you think you are and you go to another person without love and you speak slanderously to them or you speak slanderously about them to other people and you don't go with Bible in hand but with your own opinion, then you are being judgmental. You are sinning. And I think that James sets the tone right from the beginning of verse 11 by telling us, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So the idea that James is getting at is is backbiting. This this form of, of speech where we are cutting other people down, slandering, defaming, speaking against each other. This is ungodly speech focused on another person whom Jesus has died for within the context of the church and we seek to bring them down and to elevate ourselves. Slander is one of those sins that um, is so consistently committed by Christians and we do it without much of a thought. I think Mike has, has joked before even about like gossip that like so often uh, gossip or slander comes out within the context of prayer requests. <laughs> hey, pray for so-and-so. And then it's really a way to kind of gossip about them or to slander them, right? I've had conversations with people who are backbiting and speaking evil of, a, of another Christian and I'll tell them, hey, you really shouldn't be doing that. And they'll often say, what? It's true. It's true. What I'm saying about this person is true. As though because the information is verifiably true, it makes it necessary and okay to say. And so the truth becomes the license by which we disseminate information that tears down other Christians. But slander is absolutely demonic. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. And interestingly enough, the Bible stacks slander with so many other sins that we would say, well, these these sins are way worse than something like slander, right? But think, listen to some of these, some of these passages. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. Next thing, haters of God. And on and on. Another passage says, For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal. Like All of these other sins, slander, this backbiting, accusatory attitude, is stacked up with what we would view as mega sins, right? Murder? Pride? Hating God? Brutality? Treachery? But yet slander happens all the time inside the context of church. Another author said, people don't have much to talk about, so they fuel the fires of conversation 
with the flesh of others. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, where the Apostle Paul is discussing the sin of a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. He's sleeping with his own stepmother. And Paul is telling this church that they need to make a judgment call. They need to remove this person out of their church because he's claiming to be a Christian, yet he's living in sin. And that might make sense to you, right? And I hope it does. That if somebody, a member of our church, is living an immoral lifestyle, yet they're worshiping and involved with body life, that they need to be removed from the church. They need to be confronted over that. And if they don't repent, eventually take the steps to pulling them out of the church. But what I want you to notice is, again, that slander is lumped with what we would view as like mega sins. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Do not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister that is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. That if there are people who are living in open and unrepentant rebellion to God along these lines, yet they claim to be a Christian, and they're seeking to live in the body life of the church, that you don't even eat with that person. And, and one of these kinds of people that we shouldn't eat with are people who claim to be Christians, yet are active slanderers. I wonder if there's ever been a time where you looked at a professing brother or sister in the Lord and you had called them to repentance over this sin, and you got to the point where you had to say, I simply cannot even eat with you anymore. I cannot hang out with you anymore because of your slanderous tongue that you refuse to repent of. Slander is a terrible sin. And it's this person that James has in mind this morning. This one who would be willing to speak evil against one of their brothers or sisters. He is not getting at the person who would be loving enough to judge well and confront a brother or sister for the glory of God. He is getting at the kind of person who would speak ill and be judgmental of his brother or sister for his own benefit. The kind of person who would lift themselves above one of God's children. The kind of person who would lift themselves above God's law to its full extent. The kind of person who would lift themselves above God himself. And I think that those are the three main points within the passage this morning that you see on the back of your bulletin. That James is pinning down the slanderer by saying that he is a person that lifts himself above God's people. He lifts himself above God's law. And he lifts himself above God himself. And So first, when we participate in slander... We lift ourselves above God's child. Look again at the beginning of verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And as Dan made a comment, it was kind of surprising to him that we would read Leviticus. But as he read from Leviticus, I think that it really was background, as I mentioned earlier, to what James is writing here. Minimally, there is a very clear connection back to that Leviticus passage. It's the passage where we learn the second great command. That we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And what's interesting is that in Leviticus 19.16, Moses specifically says what Dan read, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So you shall not go around as a slanderer. 
This is God's law way back when. So this is not some sort of New Testament ideal. This is something that's just been conjured up in the last couple of years, or maybe something that a new concept that Jesus brought along. This is something that was said all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, by the prophet Moses. So this has long been God's desire for his people, that he has never wanted his people to slander one another. This has always been his will. But again, we need to consider this in light of what Leviticus 19 says about loving our neighbor. What James has already referred to in the book of James, by the royal law. Like this is the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so James has told us to love those around us. And the question in his mind is where in the world would we then get off slandering somebody? I told you to love your neighbor, not to slander them. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter whether you slander somebody to their face behind their back, 10 years after they did what they did, none of that matters. Slander is slander, and it's sin. When you slander a brother or sister, what you're ultimately displaying is that you could care less about the second great commandment. You're willing to break God's law by slandering somebody. You show how much you don't love your neighbor by the way you talk about them or the way that you talk right to them. And this goes for the context of our family as well. Your closest neighbors happen to sleep in the same bed as you and sleep in the room next door. Thomas Brooks said, We deal unmercifully with the names of others when we diminish from their just worth and dignity, when we make more of their infirmities and less of their virtues. And when we slander somebody, we defame them. We hurt them. We diminish from their just worth and dignity that comes from God. We make more of their weaknesses and less of their virtues. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the kind of person that is constantly accusatory and critical of other people. Like, I don't want to be the one who's criticizing you and bringing you down, right? I don't want to be the guy who is living my life in that way. And I confess that for so much of my life, I have had a hypercritical and judgmental attitude toward other Christians. And it's something that I still struggle with. And so, yes, there are times where we need to be confronted over our sin, that none of us is perfect, chiefly your pastor. But how much more often should we be lifting one another up, encouraging one another? I love what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, one of these passages that are so applicable that we need desperately. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see that day drawing near. So often, we spend so much time being critical and judgmental when the Bible calls us to take the time to stir one another up to love and good works, to encourage each other. As the day of Jesus' returning comes closer and closer, the more time marches on, the closer Jesus gets to coming. And how desperately we need to be involved in one another's lives and lifting and encouraging one another in the faith. The church is made of brothers and sisters. You are my brothers and you are my sisters. And we have a big brother, Jesus, and we have a father in heaven. And how desperately we need to be loving each other. How could I possibly be critical toward those who Jesus has died for? How could I lift myself above them? 
Yet the one who would slander another brother or sister, they do lift themselves above God's children. But they also make another grave mistake, which is our second point, that they are judgmental of other Christians. But secondly, they lift themselves above God's law. Look at verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And so when you speak against a brother or sister, what you have effectively done is you have set yourself up as the law that what you have to say is what goes and not God's law. You are no longer a doer of the law, James says. A doer of the word. Remember James had called us to that a couple chapters ago. To be a doer of the word. That we would all live in obedience to God's word. But we now set ourselves above God's word. We have gone from doing the word to now being above the word. And so we have critically judged other Christians by our own standard that we judge them by. Our own system of rules and regulations instead of God's system of rules and regulations. To be judgmental of another person in regard to areas of disagreement, second level issues, third level issues. So we're not talking about disagreeing over the gospel. We need to be clear on the gospel. We need to be clear on who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection. We need to be clear about the Trinity. We need to be clear about God's Word. All of those kinds of things. Those are high first level issues. But we're talking about things in our lives that Scripture may not give us a verse for. That there are areas of flexibility to speak against one another because we disagree on a minor point of doctrine. That doesn't belong in the body of Christ. We can hash things out. We can discuss things. Sharpen one another. But to defame somebody because they think differently than you? Most notably, I think within the context of the church, legalism has been a highly prevalent cancer. That there are lots of, there, there are lots of definitions to what legalism is, but I think that it can be rightly summarized as this. When we create or mandate a rule that is not found in God's word, and we impose it on another Christian. We create or mandate a rule that is not found in the Bible, And we impose it on another Christian. Again, Thomas Brooks. Never make those things to be absolute and necessary duties that God has nowhere declared to be such. Such things that do neither fall under a general or a particular command of God may not be imposed upon the consciences of men as absolute and necessary duties to be performed by them. And I think he's just really explaining what that definition would be. That creating a rule that is not found in the Bible and then going around and imposing that onto another Christian. This is exactly what Jesus was getting at with the Pharisees when he said, you teach human traditions as if they were the word of God. Like you've created all these traditions, all of these things that you scribes like to do, and then you take that tradition and you push it on to other Christians. And this form of thinking has paralyzed the church for decades. Churches have long had their own code of conduct that seems to surpass what is found in their own Bibles. Their rules and regulations are more strict than the Bible itself. And so if the Bible doesn't define something for you, we'll go ahead and define it for you and impose that onto you. I've I've shared my testimony with you before, but this is the kind of world that I grew up in and a lot of ways what I feel like I was saved out of. Like sometimes I'll hear the, the kinds of testimonies that you all have had and the kinds of lives that you have lived and how the Lord gloriously changed you. Well, I was a little kid that grew up like a Pharisee or a scribe and then thank the Lord he opened my eyes to see all of that works based stuff 
that could easily have been something that I would put my hope on. And it sounds almost silly now, but this toxic form of legalism that demanded obedience to a set of man-made rigid rules, or else you couldn't serve. Or else you were looked at as less of a Christian. So wear a suit and tie to church, or you can't be an usher. Wear a dress or a skirt, or you can't play the piano. If you have longer hair as a man, you can't be a deacon. Don't listen to any music with a drum or electric guitar in it. Or no kind of dancing is okay. Or going to a movie theater is wrong. And on and on the list goes. And so we have a Bible filled with God's expectations for us how to live. And we decide that that's not enough. That we need to add more rules to the thing. And so what we did in my church is we had this unwritten list of do's and don'ts. And if you broke those man-made rules, we really thought that you were less of a Christian. I can remember personally, I'll just speak for myself, as a child or a teenager, where I can think of situations where I saw a man with longer hair and the natural assumption on my end was he is not as godly of a Christian as somebody with short hair. Or I remember a woman visiting our church, which very much did not raise their hands in worship. And she was. And so she obviously was less of a Christian and a little more immature because she lifted her hands in worship. I remember playing basketball for our school at this church that had their own gym. And I peered into their sanctuary and saw a drum set. And so the natural assumption was that the church was liberal. Sorry. (laughs) Or I remember driving around with my uncle one time. And I was surprised that he had the oldies on on his truck radio. And you can imagine how toxic of an environment that would be. Where people literally look at you, make their observations, size you up, and then they're critical to you on matters that are simply not addressed in the Bible. The Bible does not say that your hair cannot touch your ears if you're a man. The Bible does not say that you cannot raise your hands in worship. Obviously, there's far more support for that. The Bible does not say that you cannot listen to the Bee Gees in your car. Although I don't know why you would want to listen to the preachers. But I feel like I can step into your life, though, and I can tell you that those things are wrong with no scripture to support it. And in those moments, what I have done is I have lifted my personal book of law over God's word, and I have imposed it onto you. I have made my law... My opinions, my preferences, my personal choices for me, a law for you. Effectively becoming modern day Pharisees and scribes. As though the word of God is deficient. As though God's word is not enough. That it's really not all that we need for faith and practice. That we can just add and add and add to it. And so we need my expectations to be added in. That God's words aren't enough. And James, I think, is pointing out that this should never be. As we close out this point, listen to the great Puritan Stephen Sharnock. He says, Do you know what you do in judging another? You take upon you the garb of a sovereign, as if he were more your servant than God's servant, and more under your authority than under God's authority. It is a setting thyself in God's tribunal, and assuming his rightful power of judging. Thy brother is not to be governed by thy fancy, but by God's law and his own conscience. I love that last sentence. Thy brother is to be governed not by thy fancy, but by God's law and by his own conscience. Each one of us has a responsibility to obey God's word. We have a responsibility to help one another to obey 
God's word. But it is, it is in the end up to you and your own conscience to live according to this book. And so we help one another to obey God's word. The point of ministry and the point of my ministry is not that all of you would have a carbon copy of my mind or my own preferences, my, my own traits, whatever it is. It's not to produce a bunch of Brandons. It's to produce a bunch of Bible-thinking Christians who will act rightly, who will live according to the Word of God. That is the point, as Paul says in Galatians, until Christ is formed in you. That's my goal as a pastor. That should be your goal as you've covenanted with your brothers and sisters to help one another. That my goal and my involvement in your life is not to see myself reproduced in you. It's to see Christ produced in you. And so we certainly have this issue where we have not loved our neighbor. And we have lifted ourselves above our neighbor. We don't love him enough to help him obey God's word. Instead, we want him to obey our word. But the last and terrible thing that a slanderer would do is that we would presume to be the appropriate judge. We would lift ourselves above God himself. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What could be worse than lifting yourself up to the position of God? Is this not the very essence of Satan? Is this not what Satan had desired all that time ago? If God is ruling and reigning with perfect judgment from His throne, and we believe that He is, and He is ruling sovereignly over this entire universe, that what would make us think that we could lift ourselves to His position and to presume ourselves to be judged? James says that there is only one lawgiver. There is only one judge. There are not many. It's just Him. The testimony of Scripture is clear in Psalm 9, verse 8. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with a brightness. Genesis 18, 25 famously says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Psalm 50, The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is a judge. Hebrews 12, And to God the judge of all. Isaiah 33, 22, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our King. He will save us. God is the lawgiver. You are not. God is the one who is the judge. You are not. He is the one who has the power to place all creation under His laws. So God is the one who calls all of the shots. God is the one who in and of Himself creates all of the laws in which we must obey. He is the sovereign Lord over all the universe. And there is not one speck of dust in this room that does not do the Lord's bidding. Because He is the sovereign Lord. Notice the last thing that he says in verse 12, this question. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And, and the tone of it is, is almost sarcastic sounding. Who are you? Like, who are you to step into somebody and to be judgmental over them? Who do you think you are? God? Why are you lifting yourself up to the position of God? Why do you ever think that you could do his job? According to James, God is the only one who has the ability to both save and to destroy. He can destroy whomever He pleases, and He can save whomever He pleases. He has the power to do either. So God is the lawgiver. He alone, think about that, has the right to impose laws onto you and to force you to demand to, to obey them. And if you don't obey them, you are guilty. You are a sinner. 
And God is the one who is not only the judge, but he is the executioner. And he has the power to destroy you or to save you. And this is the remarkable thing about it, isn't it? That God imposed laws to his creatures. His creatures have disobeyed. And so we stand before him, all of us stand before him guilty. We're in a courtroom. He's on the bench, the perfect judge of the universe. And we're the guilty party standing before him. We broke his law. And if God is a just judge, is he not going to see the heinous actions that we have done and condemn us for them? Like, doesn't he have to do that? If he's a just judge, he has absolutely got to not say, oh no, you're fine, it really wasn't that bad. No big deal, right? That is not what God can do. Because if he's a just God, he has got to see the heinousness of our actions, and he has got to condemn us for it. So the Bible claims that he is a just judge. The Bible claims I am out of step with God's law. He has got to look at a worm like Brandon Dyer and send me straight to hell. That is what he has to do. And the prosecuting attorney comes over. We can call him Satan. And he points to the list of wrongs that I have done. And it takes years to get through the rap sheet. And so the verdict is guilty. The sentence is eternity in hell. But for the Christian, something crazy happens in that courtroom setting. That Jesus steps in. The one who lived perfectly for the one who was imperfect. The one who bore the wrath of that judge. In his justice, I deserve to be slammed. But Jesus took that penalty for me. He took that penalty for you. So you don't have to bear the wrath of God in hell. Jesus bore the wrath of God for you on the cross. And so although I have broken the judge's law, and I have have stood before him guilty, I am pardoned because of what Jesus has done for me. Could there be better news to preach to the world? That that although we stand condemned in the sight of our holy judge, we have broken all of his laws, that same judge has made a way to be reconciled to himself. So by sending his only son into the world to succeed where you and I couldn't succeed in our lives, to die a satisfactory death that you and I couldn't die, and to rise from the dead that you and I could not do, and by trusting and believing in the judge's son, we can have the forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God through Jesus. We should never desire to lift ourselves above this great and glorious judge who has worked so much grace in all of our lives. Living in relationship with him is such a gift that we fear God on one sense, don't we? We should all have this reverence and fear of God, but then also to know that Christ has done everything that we need. There's no sense in having our own law. There's no sense in being judgmental, judgmental, critical, censorious. It's all what Christ has done for sinners like us. And this should place us, and within the context of this passage, this should place us in such a position of humility. How could we possibly be critical of another Christian and judgmental of our brothers and sisters in Christ who has received the immense grace from God just as we have? There is a place for judging one another according to Scripture, keeping one another accountable, helping one another to obey God's word. 
But there is no place for being judgmental. There is no place for setting up our own laws for other people to follow. And there is no place for putting ourselves in the position of God himself. And may God help us in this. To have the kind of spirit within the context of the church that we would be loving enough to approach one another and to talk about God's word and to see one another grow. But not to be critical, not to be judgmental, but to lift one another up, encourage one another, not to impose onto other Christians, but to help us all to walk in God's word. And may he himself help us to do that. Let's pray.